0: Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. I'm also active on Twitter and Substack, so I hope to see you there. A few days ago, Bloomberg warned empty office buildings have become a, quote, debt bomb. The piece kicks off with owners of gleaming office towers in San Francisco walking away from their debt while San Fran's largest mall was just abandoned by its landlords, leaving a $558 million mortgage. Two hotels were defaulted, leaving $725 million in debt, while a $1 billion portfolio of apartment buildings was just stiffed. Happily, Bloomberg fingers the culprit. Cheap debt. In fact, Mises Institute economist Mark Thornton maintains a recession tracker, the Skyscraper Index, that flashes red whenever a world's tallest building is born. As in, cheap money overbuilds and ends in recession and real estate disaster every time. Bloomberg mentions that nationwide $1.4 trillion in commercial real estate loans are due this year, and those loans are a mainstay of regional banks that are already holding on by their fingernails. Meanwhile, commercial real estate prices are now plunging, with institutional quality offices losing 27% in the past year, apartment buildings down 21%, and malls down 18%. And going by 2008, it could take years for prices to recover. One major analyst thinks 10 years. In fact, one study from Columbia and NYU says these prices will never recover, that remote work will permanently devalue property in cities like New York and San Francisco by half. That would mean a whole lot of abandoned buildings and defaults, especially older buildings with higher maintenance costs. If you've ever been to New York, older buildings with maintenance issues describes most of the city. Of course, this all hits urban tax revenue, which then drains public services like police, trash collection, cleaning streets of used needles, and All leading to a, quote, urban doom loop of people fleeing with an assist from violent crime and what Bloomberg calls, quote, highly publicized retail theft. Just the other day, somebody caught a cell phone video of a shoplifter in San Fran using a blowtorch to defeat locked shelves in a touching end of empire vignette. This urban dune loop is now coming for second tier cities as well. So Atlanta tenants vacated almost 300,000 square feet of downtown class A office space last year. 31% of Atlanta office space is now vacant. Fully a third of Atlanta's office space debt is maturing in the next 18 months. And if it's empty, it is probably going to default. Even Austin is getting hit with 6 million square feet empty. And Denver and Houston are seeing big defaults. Europe is not nearly as bad as the U.S. They haven't killed their cities as enthusiastically, but higher lending costs are even hitting London with defaults on trophy buildings in Canary Wharf. That's London's Wall Street. And I mentioned a couple months ago that Sweden's largest landlord was downgraded to junk with $13 billion in debt, while landlords are struggling in Sweden to roll over $42 billion in debt. That's in a country smaller than Ohio. While work from home will grab the headlines, every boom bust cycle hits real estate hard. This time it will be magnified, yes, by work by from home and by the third worldization of American cities to satisfy utopian activists who almost seem to root. For the violent criminals and against the middle class. If you happen to be stuck in one of those dying cities and you are not a violent criminal, it may be time to leave. And in the meantime, that debt time bomb will be hitting the already fragile regional banks. It has been 247 years since the American people threw off the oppressive yoke of a foreign power and replaced it with the modern world's most glorious ruling document, the U.S. Constitution, one of the most pro-freedom constitutions in world history, and certainly in the modern world, because... Happily, the Constitution is based on the fundamental assumption that government is evil and the people must be able to defend against it. That Constitution, in my opinion, is America's superpower. It's what separates us from the beasts and from the socialists. After all, plenty of countries have independent-minded people like, say, Australia or once upon a time Canada, and yet they have become docile subjects in a way that Americans have not, I think because of our Constitution. The First, Second, Fourth and Fifth Amendments have been a lighthouse bringing us back every time we stray back towards a free people with the inalienable right to self-defense, both physically and politically, against what the framers saw as an inevitably predatory federal government. But the Constitution's greatest prizes are what's to come, the parts that are not currently enforced. The so-called constitution in exile that was set aside when FDR threatened to pack the court in the 1930s an age when such despotism was, of course, popular. And it awaits nothing more than a Supreme Court with five individuals bold enough to actually read the Constitution they swear to uphold. Paramount among these economically are the Tenth Amendment, just 27 words long, and another 31 words in the Contracts Clause. The Tenth says anything not literally spelled out in the Constitution is reserved for the people or the states. This would abolish almost everything the Federal Government does today. They'd be down to national defense, courts, and naming post offices. Essentially, every single policy pushed today in a presidential campaign, everything from Democrats, most of what comes from Republicans, is per the 10th unconstitutional. Among the things the 10th would abolish include the Federal Reserve, indeed paper money, because the Constitution delegates neither. The federal government is allowed to regulate money, as in ensure that a one-ounce gold coin in fact contains one ounce of gold. It cannot print unbacked confetti. Only states can issue money, and even then only quote gold and silver coin. The federal government also cannot mandate the use of paper money, legal tender, and the federal government certainly cannot direct a private company, the Federal Reserve, to run our economy. The second game changer is the Contracts Clause, which says that no state shall make any law impairing the obligation of contracts. That sounds small, but it would completely transform our world. It would return us to the golden age of the late 1800s that built our modern economy. Because if you have the absolute right to contract, It means you can produce anything. You can sell anything. You can buy anything you like that repeals the entire administrative state that is progressively crushing the American economy and threatening political rights that ultimately rest on property rights. If you can't eat, you won't speak. The constitution fully enforced is the blueprint for a free and prosperous society. It's been exciting watching the Supreme Court overturn decades of bad law, and I'm hopeful that they keep going to disarm the unconstitutional monetary administrative regime that has enslaved us. It will not happen tomorrow, but I'm optimistic that we have the solution in our hands and the fiat administrative regime is living on borrowed time. One of the big economic debates this year has been, are we in recession? The debate has hinged on the wobbly GDP while its lesser known twin GDI is screaming red. The U.S. government uses two main measures of economic growth, GDP and GDI. GDP, gross domestic product, measures production, all the stuff we produce in a year, while GDI, gross domestic investment, measures all the income we receive in a year. In theory, these should be equal since they're two sides of the same transaction. So you produce something, you sell it, and the price should record on both sides. In fact, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which calculates both GDP and GDI, calls them conceptually equal equal. The problem is that since the pandemic, they have diverged massively, with GDI lagging by about $240 billion per year. That is a lot of lost activity for conceptually equal. In fact, $240 billion is the GDP of Ohio. More important, if GDI is the true number, it implies economic growth could be overstated by almost 3%. This matters because the entire recession debate has hinged on GDPs bouncing in and out of negative territory. If, in fact, GDI is the more accurate, then we've actually been shrinking for 18 months now. The last time we saw a streak that long was Q3 of 2008. That was the eve of the Lehman Brothers collapse that set off the great financial crisis. Now, it's worth noting that even the GDP numbers are no great shake. It's standard for GDP to wobble between positive and negative early in any recession. For example, in the 2008 crisis, which was the worst since the 70s, Q1 was negative. Negative, and then Q2 bounced to positive, then GDP went negative and stayed there until late 2009. The recession, according to the official NBER, was officially set to that very first dip. They ignored the wobble in 2008. So if the 2008 recession was declared after just one negative quarter, we've already had two negative quarters, which is the standard definition for going on 100 years. Meanwhile, if the GDP versus GDI mystery turns out in GDI's favor, in other words, if income is the accurate one, then we would be at six negative quarters, but still not an official recession. Now, if policymakers and government statisticians, whose salaries you pay, were actually trying to report the truth about the economy, perhaps to offer needed guidance to businesses, banks, and households, they would take those two negative GDP prints, they would cross-reference the six negative GDI reads, remember, they're supposed to be twins, and they would sound the alarm. Of course, their goal is not to responsibly guide us. It's to gaslight us in hopes we overspend our way out of the crash. I've mentioned in recent videos that this is literally policy. This deception is called forward guidance, and they attack anybody who goes off script and warns Americans to prepare. The bottom line is that GDP says recession, even with the pandemic fog, going by the 100 year definition, while GDI says we are already in deep recession and have been for a long time, with stocks held up by little more than central bank liquidity, all while Washington gaslights Americans in, into ignoring the speeding train until it hits, at which point they will say nobody could have possibly seen it coming. Recently, the deputy managing director of the IMF, Gita Gopenath, gave a speech at the European Central Bank Forum warning that it may be impossible for central banks to get rates high enough to actually end inflation. Gopinath listed three, quote, uncomfortable truths about inflation right now that have surprised central bankers who, one might note, are supposed to understand these things. Gopinath's three surprises are, one, entrenched inflation, two, weak banks, and three, potential structural decay. The first surprise for central bankers is how entrenched inflation remains despite the most aggressive rate hikes worldwide in 50 years. I've talked about this in videos, how the low-hanging fruit on inflation has already been booked, the standard recession plunges in commodities, including energy, yet core inflation, which is the one central banks worry about, has not improved at all for going on at least six months now. Gopinath's second big surprise is how weak commercial banks turned out to be. Indeed, we've already seen in dollar terms more failed banks in the U.S. than the 2008 crisis, and that's before the worst of the recession even hits. Gopinath warns that while governments so far have been mostly able to bail out interest rate hits to banks, increased borrower defaults from any recession may expand those bailouts to the point that the bailouts themselves start generating fresh inflation pressure. In other words, bailout trillions take inflation back towards double digits. Together, these suggest that central bankers are stuck. They may not actually be able to end this inflation with conventional rate hikes, because jacking rates high enough to sufficiently choke the real economy would force them to either let the entire banking system die— or to print potentially even more money than even the COVID lockdowns. Her third surprise is even more ominous. Quote, structural changes affecting aggregate supply that could lead to larger and more persistent shocks. In plain English, that the major economies of the world have become permanently weaker. This should not be a surprise between soaring regulation crushing producers, whether the excuse was COVID. Climate or social justice. Plus, I've talked about how government stimulus and industrial policy drain resources from productive businesses while funding competitors who can afford to lose money because it's taxpayer money. Taken together, these crush the small businesses and entrepreneurs who actually grow the economy. Now, if that is true, it means less production to absorb all those fresh trillions, meaning more money chasing fewer goods, in which case, forget fighting today's inflation, it could actually start going up again. If that decline is structural, as in permanent, it means inflation may go on for a very long time. In fact, if governments crush the economy and print money as enthusiastically as they have these past three years, we could be looking at a significant Worsening of growth, incomes, and inflation. The solution is frustratingly simple cut government, slash regulations, mandates, and taxes that crush producers, slash government spending that drives the very inflation that makes central banks strangle the real economy with rate hikes. We are rapidly approaching a moment when the one way out of this mess is the one thing they will not do massively downsize government. The IMF won't admit it, central bankers certainly won't admit it, but it's the only way we get out of this in one piece. Fresh U.S. manufacturing numbers took a, quote, sharp turn for the worse last month, now dropping at a 5.3% annualized rate that matches last year's lows and both are the worst since the 2008 crisis and of course the covid lockdowns in fact this now marks the eighth straight month of contraction manufacturing also the worst since 2008 in the latest numbers both production and employment declined while new orders which is a canary in the coal mine in manufacturing collapsed. Surprisingly, even consumer goods are now contractionary. So manufacturers reported consumers pulling back because of one, rising cost of living, two, higher interest rates, meaning higher debt payments, and three, growing concerns about the economy, as in consumers are afraid of losing their jobs. Finally, pricing power flopped, in the new survey, which normally would be cause for celebration in this inflationary age. But in this case, it is companies purging inventory, selling it at whatever price they can get in preparation for a collapse in sales. In fact, sliding manufacturing is now a worldwide phenomenon as contraction in the US and Europe spreads to Asian exporters. Europe's most recent PMI came in even worse than the US, while Europe's year-on-year industrial production is at a 4% drop both also the worst since both 2008 and the lockdowns. Of all of the major countries at this point, only China is in positive territory, and just barely. This global manufacturing crunch is hitting global commodity prices, which are now plunging despite ongoing worldwide inflation. So normally inflation should boost commodity prices because they're hard assets, but recession is now overwhelming that. As a whole, commodities are down 12% on the year, while industrial commodities, which are more sensitive to recession, are down 14%. Oil, which is very sensitive to recession, is down 39%. So what is next? I'd expect a continued drop in goods prices as companies liquidate inventory while workers give up on raises for fear of finding another job. The next domino to fall will be services as cost of living, debt and jobs all hit demand for everything from haircuts to construction. If that too falls... At that point, expect the long-promised drop in core inflation, but not because they fixed inflation, rather because they finally killed the economy. Biden's handlers will no doubt take a victory lap, either because they don't know or they don't care that inflation is being squeezed out of the American people and paid in blood. After trillions in money printing to finance government deficits, there are fundamentally only two ways to fix inflation. Shrink the money or crash the real economy. While money supply is now contracting at the worst rate since the 30s, I did a video on this last month, that is still only a 10th of the 40% increase in the money supply during lockdowns, leaving the other nine-tenths of money printing to beat out of the American consumer. We are seeing what could be the largest engineered recession in a generation all to hide the obscene money printing it took to bribe voters into lockdowns. Our leaders are still in denial, but businesses and increasingly consumers are getting ready for a major storm. A new article says America is in a fiscal death spiral, and there are only three options, slash spending, crushing taxes, or fire up the money printers. The death spiral, according to Charles Hugh Smith, is a, quote, fiscal meteor that he thinks could lead to financial collapse and social disorder. Smith is echoing Ray Dalio's similar prediction that we are headed for a great disorder as the Ponzi unravels. I have an article on that on the website. Now, whatever form that disorder might take the fiscal death spiral is the most likely trigger. Why? Because our current trends are out of control. The deficit is the difference between spending and taxes, and it has to be financed somehow. Somebody's got to buy it up. Between rapidly growing spending and a $32 trillion national debt that is compounding, in other words, we're borrowing to service old debt at the highest rates in 20 years, together, these are pushing the deficit so far this year to $700 billion worse than it was last year. But that's only the beginning because a recession would slash tax revenue. If Americans are making less, they're also paying less in tax. In the dot-com recession, revenue dropped 12%. In the 2008 crisis, it plunged 16%. So that would add yet another 600 to $700 billion to the deficit. Put it together and we could get to between two to two and a half trillion dollars in deficit. For perspective, that was the entire federal budget in 2008. As in, if the government stopped collecting taxes in 2008, we'd have today's deficit. So who would absorb all that debt? Some would drain from business loans or municipal bonds, which would deepen the recession. Businesses would be starved of investment money. While Starving the already struggling cities as well. But most would not be absorbed at all without either spiking interest rates on government bonds to drain everything else, and by the way, compounding the deficits with higher rates. Or, of course, the Fed, typing magic trillions and buying up the deficit, which would spike inflation. So which is it? Spending, taxes, or inflation? Washington obviously won't cut spending. It's what they live for. As for taxes, the rich spend hundreds of billions lobbying and accounting their way out of taxes. So they are probably off the menu. As Smith put it, the rich have a political veto. The poor, of of course, will get slammed, as always. See taxes on booze, cigarettes, or gasoline. But that's only so much juice to squeeze, leaving the last man standing, the middle class, who account for roughly 40% of income. So if they're the tax cow, they get to carry two and a half times their share. Of course, two trillion is a lot of money, so you'd have to roughly double middle class taxes. You'd be looking at 40 or 50% marginal rates. Any politician who proposes that is out of a job, so that is probably not happening. And so we are left with the Fed and their money printers. Now, if they print up the deficit like during COVID, inflation won't take off all at once for two reasons. First, recessions lower prices as unsold goods pile up and energy prices plunge. Second, financial panics are inherently deflationary. When savings vehicles like bonds or loans evaporate, they default, dollars are taking out of circulation to plug the hole. Still, whatever inflation does in the near term, we are locked into an inflationary death spiral. They will kick the can as long as they can, then they'll squeeze the middle class until they get angry, and then this fiscal spiral ends the way they all do, printing eye-watering quantities of money. Biden's new job numbers are out, and they are ugly. In short, real jobs are down, while DoorDash and government jobs are the entire Bidenomics miracle. My colleague EJ and Tony broke it down in a Twitter thread, so let's dig in. Headline jobs rose 209,000 in the June report, which was 30,000 less than expected, so that's a miss. That's also the lowest in two and a half years, and it took the unemployment rate to 3.6%, which is up just a smidge on the year. Meanwhile, the previous two months were revised down by 110,000 jobs. By the way, we've seen this every report this year with numbers being revised down, meaning either government statisticians are getting very bad at their job or... They are intentionally reporting rosy numbers, then revising them down when nobody is looking. So accounting for the revisions leaves about 100,000 jobs on the month. Keep in mind, population growth cancels about 70,000 of those, leaving 30. Essentially flat on a worker population of 162 million. But it gets worse. For starters, most of those net jobs were actually government jobs, which don't grow the economy. In fact, many shrink it. We can debate whether an EPA bureaucrat cancels five or ten workers, but they certainly aren't growing anything. They are parasites. So that takes us to productive jobs growing actually below the pace of population. Finally, the big one, job composition. The BLS reported that multiple job holders rose a amazing 233,000 on the month, which completely swamped the alleged job gains. In addition. 452,000 more people were working part-time for, quote, economic reasons. In other words, not by choice. Which BLS attributes to people whose, quote, hours were reduced due to slack work or business conditions. In other words, companies are reducing hours, which is the next step to layoffs. Take it together and real jobs plunged by over 100,000 with more to come, while Americans made up the difference delivering DoorDash. Not even counting the 2 million plus workers who are still missing. I've mentioned in previous videos that they've dropped out of the labor force since COVID. Many are now on government benefits where they're no longer counted as unemployed. Statistically, they're retired. So what's next? Erosion in job composition is hitting wages, which came in flat after inflation. That's actually surprising since inflation was supposed to have trickled into wages by now. I've got an upcoming video on that. Even so, flat wages is bad news for the Fed, who's trying to make wages go down so people stop spending and the federal government can spend instead. So expect the Fed to turn this into yet more rate hikes, limited at this point only by their fear of crashing yet more banks. Month by month, Americans are losing their financial buffer, their full-time jobs, their savings, all while their debts pile up and mid-Washington happy talk about the amazing feats of Bidenomics. As post-pandemic pent-up demand fades and the economy drops into full-blown recession, on present trends, there will be millions of Americans up against the wall. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox, and I hope to see you on Twitter or Substack. We'll be watching. See you next time.